Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, and 22 through 27, and chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city, the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding each fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you can see we've got a lot of work to do this morning. So I'm going to get right to it. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy to be preaching to you this morning. Uh, let me pray and ask the Spirit to help us. Father, we thank you for being a covenant-keeping God who goes before us. We thank you for the sign and the seal of baptism that we got to celebrate today, that you are a God that saves, that it's not a sign that points to our work, it's a sign that points to your work and sending your son to live the life that we should live and die the death that we deserve. We thank you for your work. Now, Father, I pray that you would help me declare your work, help me open up your word and preach it rightly to your people. I need your help. I am a sinful man, so I need grace upon grace upon grace. Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords this morning? Would you help your people hear, hear rightly? Um, would you keep distractions at a minimum and just help us focus on what you'd have to say to us this morning? Would you do this for our joy and your glory? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as Ben said, we're starting this series this week we're calling Fundamentals. We're gonna be taking the next 15 weeks uh, to study in detail the fundamentals of our church. We're going to be doing this for several reasons. One, to get us all on the same page and unify our church around our vision and our mission. 
If you've ever built anything, if you've ever led a team, you've ever led a, you know, a sports team or a team at work or an organization, you realize that vision leaks and mission drifts. We constantly get off mission and need to be brought back to what we're really here for. And so that's what we're going to try to do. Secondly, we are celebrating our 10-year anniversary in August and want to both celebrate what God has done over the past 10 years and begin to position ourselves and prepare ourselves for the next 10 years, Lord willing, of gospel ministry here in the city. And third, as you know, if you've been here for very long, we're asking God to make 2021 a year of gospel renewal. And gospel renewal traditionally happens when God's people return to the fundamentals of their faith and the spirit of God um, pours himself out on those efforts. Typically, that's usually what happens. And so we're asking God to do that in our midst, in our church this year. And today, I'm going to begin this series by talking about the mission of God. Now, I assume that many of us, maybe even most of us, have never thought about the mission of God. Does God have a mission? If he does, what is his mission? Now, maybe some of us would say, oh yeah, God's got a mission. He's got a mission to save souls. That's his mission. Maybe that's the case. We're going to find that out later in the sermon. But I bet that maybe all of us in this room have spent significant time thinking about our own mission in life. Who am I? What am I here for? What's my purpose in life? Now, those are all good questions. However, they're actually impossible to answer without first answering the question about God's mission. We exist because God has a mission to be known. Think about that for a moment. If God is real, by definition, he's the creator of everything, that means this is his universe and we are a part of his creation. We cannot create our own purpose or mission in life any more than we could create our own universe. Instead, we should ask ourselves, what is God's mission? And how do I, as one of his creation, fit inside of it? So we aren't authors creating our own stories. Rather, we are all characters written into the story of God, and he's the author. Now, this goes against the predominant worldviews in our culture today, which say there is no creator there is no author, and you are simply a result of blind chance. A bunch of atoms spontaneously appeared out of thin air, split, exploded, and voila, billions of later, here you are. The end result of a series of scientific anomalies. So the story goes, in that universe, in that worldview, there is no creator. You are the creator. You are the author of your own story. You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. We are taught that we are the masters of our own fate. We are the captains of our own soul. And so we live 
our day-to-day lives like we are both the main author and the main character of our own story. And everyone else is at best a supporting role. Now think about that. Right now in the Quad Cities, there's almost 400,000 people. That's 400,000 authors slash main characters all living their life trying to get you to play the supporting role. Can I ask you, what causes your frustrations in life? What gives you anxiety? What brings you the most pain? Isn't it, in fact, when someone in your life refuses to do what you want them to do? They just refuse to play the part that you have written for them, right? Like all of our kids, I've written the story and you are meant to be the obedient child. You are, written, you are meant to go to bed at 8, 8 p.m. and wake up at 8 a.m. That's the narrative I have for your life at this season of your life. Follow that, right? And then every child at 8 p.m. all of a sudden gets a sugar high and goes off the walls, right? Now, or how many of us, you know what? We've written that spouse into our future. I want to date that person. Did you, I don't know if you knew this or not, but in my story, you're the one. She's like, in my story, you ain't even close. <laughs> right? Now that's where all, all of this is going because we all, everybody out there thinks they're an author and the main character too. And from their perspective, you're the problem, right? You're meant to play a supporting role in their story and you're trying to get them to play a supporting role in your story. Now, Christianity has a totally different and unique perspective. A perspective that can change the way you see yourself and you see everyone else in the world. And when you begin to see the world through the lens of Christianity, you you can stop trying to get others to play some supporting role in your lame made-for-TV movie, and you can begin to see yourself as part of the greatest story ever told, the story of God. You are a character in that story. God is the author of that story. And he has written you into his story. Think about that. You wouldn't exist if he didn't want you to exist. He created your character. He formed you in your mother's womb. He determined your parents, your DNA, your backstory. He wrote all that. You had nothing to do with your backstory. Where you were born, how your parents got together, what kind of crazy they brought with them. You had nothing to do with your backstory. He wrote your backstory. He created your character for a role. You have a mission inside his mission. There's another one. Get out of here. You, you mess with the wrong preacher up here. I ain't scared of a wasp, boy. Goodness gracious. I don't want to swallow it, though. That's a bad thing. Right? Listen, what, what would many of us do, what many of us, sorry. That was left-handed. Did you see that? That was left-handed. All right. What many of us do, think about this. We, 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 we show up into this world like we show up on somebody else's set. There's already a director. There's already a screenwriter. Everybody's already bought the building and paid all that. We show up and we go, I want to play my role. 
no, that's, that's not how this world works. You play the role that's set for you, right? You're an actor in somebody else's story. Well, the good news that I'm telling you this morning is that you have a role. You have a mission inside God's mission. And since he's omnipotent, he's all powerful, his mission is unstoppable. His mission is universal in scope. His mission reaches all the way back to the very beginning before time existed and reaches all the way into the future, into eternity. And so would you rather have a little bitty part to play in that kind of narrative or do you want to just walk around the world and create some cheap Hallmark movie that you're trying to get other people to play a part in? Now, if you've been around here for very long, you know that I am a Lord of the Rings nerd. I'll just own it. If you buy me the t-shirt, I'll wear it, okay? The books, you're like, why doesn't he ever move past the Lord of the Rings? Because the books never leave my bedside table and I never stop reading them. I read them every single night before bed, okay? That's how much I love them. Now, if you aren't familiar with them, the story begins with a young hobbit. Now, if you, you don't worry about what a hobbit is. I couldn't explain it if I tried right now. A young hobbit named Frodo who loves listening to the great stories of his uncle. Stories, like all good stories, stories of heroes and villains and dragons and trolls. Stories packed full of darkness and light, evil and goodness. Stories heavy on adventure. But all of this was safely locked away in a book. Frodo's real life looked nothing like those stories. He was living in a nice little safe bubble called the Shire. But as you're reading the book, or the books, soon Frodo finds himself caught up in what comes to be the greatest story of all the ages. The one ring of power has come to him through a series of unfortunate events and no longer now can he just read the good, good old stories of old and put his head on the pillow and sleep and have good dreams. No, he finds himself somehow written into this epic and now he has a role to play. And in a moment when things were looking especially bleak, especially dark, really hopeless, didn't even know if he should move forward, take another you know, another step towards uh, Mount Doom. His partner in crime is Sam says these words to him. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something, even if we were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? that there's some good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Now, I think this is a p 
pivotal moment in the story when Sam and Frodo realize that they are playing small parts in something way bigger than they had ever imagined. They are in one of those epic tales that they used to just read about and they have a part to play. It's not just about them, it's about the entire world. Now, I resonate with Frodo here, not just because of my height, but I grew up reading the stories in the Bible like a collection of great tales full of heroes and morals to be learned. I grew up learning about Noah and Adam and Eve and Abraham and David and Daniel and the lions and then Jesus and all of these disconnected stories that I thought, wow, look what that guy did. How amazing. Go be like that. Kind of like a book of nursery rhymes. Most of the time it was highly edited book of nursery rhymes. Nobody ever read Judges to me as a little child. <laughs> the Bible was broken apart from me and disconnected from my real life. It's like fairy tales in such a way that I never saw the thread that ran through the whole of scripture, the overarching narrative of what God was telling. Did you know the Bible is actually a story? Connected. Philosophers call that a meta-narrative. I'm going to call it a mega-narrative. The big story that God's telling. So when we read the Bible like that, disconnected in these little stories, we miss the mega-narrative, but we also miss that we've actually been written into this story. The story of Scripture is not complete. It's moving toward its conclusion and every one of us has a part to play in it. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says, if you had to reduce the Bible to its baseline narrative, it would be called the mission of God. I gotta be honest. I grew up going to church and I never heard about the mission of God. I heard about the mission of God's people. I heard about how I was supposed to behave and what I was supposed to be do, doing. I didn't learn that God has a mission and God is the one accomplishing that mission. That's one of the signs of, and seals of baptism. Baptism is about God's work, not our work. God sent Jesus before we were even born to accomplish our salvation. So what is God's mission? God's mission is to be known. Why are we here this morning? Why do we exist at all? We are here because God has a mission to be known. If God didn't want to be known, he would not have created us. God was eternally happy with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He did not create us because he needed work to do. He did not create us because he was bored. He created us so that we could know him. At its most basic level, God's mission is to be known, loved, and enjoyed by his creation. But I wanna go a little deeper into that definition this morning. I'm gonna do it 
by reverse engineering the mission of God. Now, reverse engineering, think about Marty McFly getting into a modern day Tesla and going back 100 years, okay? Parks that sucker there. What is that thing? I don't know what that thing is, but one way to, to figure out what it's for is to reverse engineer it. You get in it, you drive it, you take it apart, you look how it's put together, you look at its pieces, and then you can determine its purpose. That's what we're going to do with the mission of God this morning. So basically what we're gonna to go to do, here it is, we're gonna to go to the end of the story and we're gonna read the conclusion and then after we see the conclusion, we can begin to understand how the mission of God should impact our everyday lives. Now I realize, I heard that there's some people that read books that way. Psychopaths. Read the last chapter first and then they, ruining the story. But I'm taking a page out of your book today. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the end of the story, look where God's moving his mission, what it looks like, and that's going to help us understand his mission and our mission in this world right now. Cool? Cool? Hey, listen, settle in, y'all. It's, it's Sunday. It's Lord's Day. Not the Lord's hour. It's Lord's Day. Just settle in. Open up Revelation 21. Revelation 21. I've got five observations, five observations about the mission of God. We're going to start in chapter tw uh, 21, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now look at this right away. We see something different here. We're living on the first earth. If you die today and you're in Christ, you will go to the first heaven. But the end of all things is not heaven. The end of all things that we're headed is a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, let's keep reading. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will, himself will be with them as their God. First observation. God's mission involves a people and a place. We see a people and a place. We see a city coming down from heaven and we see a people created to know God. Both a people and a place, a sacred city. That's the end result of this whole story that God's telling is a sacred city. Think about everything that comes with cities. Think about infrastructure, think about roads, think about buildings, think about everything. We're not, we're not talking about some disembodied spiritual place where we all float around on, on clouds. The end we're headed is a city, a sacred city, people and a place. Secondly, the end goal is for God to dwell with a sacred people in a sacred place. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. What is this? This is going back to the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam and Eve, he could walk with them in the cool of the day. They could see his face. They could enjoy his presence. Now, we might not understand the goodness of that, but every good thing you've ever experienced in your life is but a sunlight, is just a ray of his goodness. God himself is the source of all joy, the source of all happiness, the source of all goodness, the source of all meaning. Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. So the goal of the new heavens and the new earth is that a sacred people 
in a sacred place, get to experience God himself. Heaven is not, I was just taught about the streets of gold. Honestly, I wasn't that interested in the construction materials. Streets of gold. Cool? No, no. That's not the goodness, that's not the goodness of heaven. God himself will be there and we will see his face. That's the reality of heaven that we can't wait to experience. Third, let's go to verse four and five. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Okay, here's, here's what we need to see. In order to get us and this world to that future, God has some major work he has to do. He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to defeat death. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more darkness. There'll be no more sin. Why? Because Jesus is on the throne and he says, I am making all things new. Now, many times people think that God's just gonna, you know, just destroy everything and then create everything ex, ex nihilo again, out of nothing. That's not what he's doing. He's not gonna do the same thing he did in Genesis chapter one and two. No, no, he's renewing now. He's restoring, he's renovating, he's remodeling. That's the work that Jesus is going to do finally in the new heavens and new earth, but he's also doing it now. Fourth thing that I see. Kids, you need to listen to this one. Look at verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Okay, hold on. This is what he's getting at right here. This isn't, how do I say this? This Kids, listen. This isn't a religious future. What do I mean by that? The new heavens and the new earth aren't going to feel like a really long church service. Like we're going to sing holy, holy, holy. Like the worship leader is just going to get, do it again. <laughs> do it again. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Change the chord this time, but do it again. Like, no, there is no temple. We don't need a temple. We don't need religion. Because the point of all religion and the point of all temples and the point of all buildings has already been realized. Jesus Christ himself is walking amongst us and he's not destroying us because something's happened. He's renewed us, he's restored us, he's redeemed us in such a way that we can be in his presence without being destroyed. There is no sun. Why? Because the glory of God is there. You know what that means? That means God is driving all darkness out of his creation. The sun is wonderful. The sun is beautiful, but the sun creates shadows. The sun creates pockets of darkness. The sun rises, the sun falls. But when God dwells among us, there will be no darkness anywhere. 
You know what else? Let's keep reading. Look at 4 and, or 23 and 24. 24. By its light will the na- nations walk. Look at this. Look at this. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Look, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What is that? Heaven, the new heavens and new earth is not some spiritual place where somehow, oh God, we become angels. If I hear one other person say that somebody dies and now they got their wings and they've become an angel. That is a different religion. That is not Christianity. The new heavens and the new earth is a real city. We get real flesh and blood bodies and look what happens. The kings of the earth bring their glory into it. What does that mean? One, it means it's multicultural. Every nation, God's got redeemed all over the the globe and they're going to bring their glory into it. What is that? That is human culture. The new heavens and new earth is full of human culture. Well, what, what does that mean? Listen to this. We were created by God with an innate impulse to express ourselves distinctly in art, architecture, music, theater, science, engineering, agriculture, industry, philosophy, education, fashion, sports, entertainment, law, government. The uniqueness of culture is a natural outworking of the human spirit that was created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and it will be present in the new heavens and the new earth with one caveat. I want you to hear this. There will be culture in the new heavens and new earth. Okay, here it is. We were made in the image of God, so we're very creative. We fell in sin, so we're sinful, okay? All of this that we create is making its way into the new heavens and the new earth. What will we eat? Sushi, maybe? Steak tacos, definitely. (laughs) Texas barbecue, for sure, Will there be sports in heaven? Why not? Will there be art in heaven? Why not? Will there be music in heaven? Absolutely. Will there be animals in heaven? Absolutely. Will there be work in heaven? (gasps) Absolutely there's gonna be work in heaven. There was before the curse. In the garden, there was work to do. It just wasn't cursed. It wasn't hard. So we'll be doing creative things. The only people that are gonna be out of a job in the new heavens and the new earth are pastors and healthcare workers. Insurance agents too, actually. I don't know what it is about most churches that raise kids to think of heaven as the most boring place to ever go. I don't really want to be an angel, Dad. I don't even play the harp. What am I going to do? The only thing I'm certain that won't be in heaven is boredom. Now there's one caveat, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, that's that's good news and it's also a problem 
The good news is nothing unclean is going to enter the new heavens and new earth. So everything that we hate about this life has an expiration date. There will be no murder. There will be no poverty. There will be no racism. There will be no brokenness. There will be no on and on and on. Thank God all of that has an expiration date. But the question remains, if nothing unclean is gonna enter into the new heavens and the new earth, how am I getting in? We'll answer that question in a minute. Fifth thing I wanted you to see about the new heavens and the new earth that we're going, 22, one through five. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamp in the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will be anything accursed, praise God, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We will see his face, name on the foreheads. I don't know what that means. We're under his identity. We're in Christ. We get a new name. We're not trying to build our identity anymore. We get it received from Christ, okay? Let's keep reading. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light, nor lamp, nor sun for the Lord God will be their light. Look at this. And they will reign forever and ever. Fifth observation about the mission of God, we will worship him and reign with him forever. That's what we're written. That's what we're written into play. The part we're written into play. Worship, not just singing songs, do that. Our whole life lived quorum Dale before the face of God. Working, worship, whatever we're doing. It's all, whatever we're doing, it's all worship. This is the end for which God created the world and everything in it. This is where history is headed. It's common for people to say today, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I got to be honest. I'm far more concerned with being on the wrong side of the future. This is where God is taking us. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is his mission. This is Jesus' mission. Listen to his words in chapter 21, 5 through 8. And Jesus, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus, that's the baddest thing any person's ever said before. I'm not just an alpha. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I existed with God in the Trinity. I created the story. I came up with the story. I entered into history and lived out the story. I'm getting it to its end. And the whole point of the story is about me. I'm the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Keep reading. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's a strange turn. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's sitting on the throne. And you expect him to say something like, to all of the morally upright, to all of the holy, to all of the righteous, to all of the do-gooders, to all of the children of light, this, come get it in my kingdom. No, he says, to the thirsty. Why? Because this is the same Jesus who preached the Sermon on the Mount, remember? Who said what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for theirs will be filled. See, this is the upside down nature of God's kingdom. We get in by acknowledging our thirst, our inability to quench our own thirst, to satisfy our own soul. But I don't want to soften the words of Jesus at all. Look what he says. Those who conquer, or to the thirsty, I'll give you from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus is saying here, the thirsty come to me and I give them the water of life. But if you don't recognize your thirst, if you don't come to Christ, you're going to experience two deaths. Jesus is saying, if you're born twice, you'll die once and then live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But if you're only born once, you will die twice and be eternally separated from God and his new heavens and new earth. You will literally be on the wrong side of the future. You say, how can a person be born twice? That's a great question. They asked Jesus the same thing when he said it the first time. Jesus says, if anyone wants to see the kingdom of God, they must be born again. That means we recognize our spiritual thirst and the inability we have to quench it and we come to Jesus, the eternal water that we need. We see the futility in our own way. We see that we could never earn our way to God through our good deeds. We can't write our own story or create our own eternal kingdom. The only hope we have is that God is a gracious author and would give us everything we need for life and godliness. That we are spiritually thirsty, but he is a good author that would write into the story spiritual water. And that is exactly why Jesus came to this earth. He came to give us that water. He came to give the spiritually dead new life. He came to make all things new, even us. God, our creator, who created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever, who created us to know, love, and enjoy him, his creation, and each other, and yet because of the sin of Adam and Eve and the sin of all of us, our world is cursed and headed towards destruction. But God, P, 
being so rich in mercy, wrote himself into the story in order to come and accomplish the mission that he had for us. What? He's writing it out. We fail it. We've screwed it up. It looks like everything's literally gone to hell in, the hand, to hell, hell in a handbasket. There's 400 years of darkness. This is how the story ends. If it was a Western, you'd hear that cool Western sound right here. Whatever the heck it is. Why? Because in steps the author himself. In steps the one who will make all things new. In steps the one who will obey the Ten Commandments perfectly, will never sin against God, who will never uh, lie, who will never cheat, who will never lose faith. And he lives a perfect life. And instead of setting up his throne and going, finally, the man has come around. It's time for you guys all to worship me now. He goes one step further and does what's necessary to redeem us, to buy us. All of our sins deserve death. So what does Jesus do? He takes our place. He takes our sin upon himself and takes it to the cross and pays the price of it. Experiences for us what we're all going to experience because of our sin, death. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus had the power of an indestructible life. He was a sin, he was the sinless son of God. So three days later, he kicked the end out of that open tomb. He rose to new life again purchasing for us a resurrection, a, a new life, the renewal of all things. That our flesh, our sinful flesh, has an expiration date. We're gonna get new created flesh. flesh. New created and fresh flesh. <laughs> God, now listen. This is the story of God. This is God's mission. It's not yours, necessary. it's not yours, it's not about you, it's about him. He created us, he redeemed us, he's restored us, he's rescued us, he is the one renewing us. God's mission is to be known, loved, and enjoyed by his creation, and he is moving that forward into his new heavens and new earth, and no one can stop him. The gates of hell can't prevail against him. So, in my last minute, what is our mission in light of his mission? An Old Testament scholar, Christopher Wright, says this. Listen, it's beautiful, I think. Mission is inviting all the people of the earth to hear the music of God's future and dance to it today. Mission means inviting all the people of the earth to hear the music of God's future and dance to it today. That's what I tried to do for you this morning. Paint a picture of the future of God that's actually encouraging and inspiring and I want you to live into it. I want you to dance to that music today. There's this thing in Latin, it's called the Missio Dei. It means the mission of God. And what it is is God, Trinity, God the Father sent the Son to this earth. The son accomplished the mission of God. And the son goes to the right hand of the father and the father and the son send the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, fills the church, 
God's people. And now we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sending the church. That God is a missional God. He sent the Son. Father and Son sent the Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have sent the church. The church is God's people saved by God's power for God's purposes. What are God's purposes in the world? It's these, those five things that I went over today. One, we invite people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. Two, we invite people to live as a member of God's people, his church. Three, we work to bring renewal in our city. That's why we should be, be in healthcare, bringing health to people. We should be restoring and renewing and, and tearing do down dividing walls of hostility between socioeconomic classes and races and all different things. We should be working to renew our city, the real world that we live in, because everything good that is created is gonna make its way into the new heavens and new earth. Four, we should create good culture. We need people to write good books. We need people to write good screenplays and make good movies and make good music. We need husbands and fathers, husbands and fathers. We need husbands and wives to raise families and create good culture in their homes. We need good education and systems. On and on and on and on. We're not to sit on our hands and wait for Jesus to show up in the great by and by. We're to get to work doing good deeds in this city. Listen, a good barber, a Christian barber, isn't a barber that wears a Jesus shirt. A Christian barber is a barber who does it for the glory of God and gives you good haircuts. Too often we've got this idea, it doesn't matter how good of a haircut you give. I got a Jesus shirt on. No. Why is Christian music often terrible? Because they're just singing about Jesus. They don't have any talent. They haven't put in years of expertise or years of work and years of practice. They haven't done the 10,000 hours to actually become an expert in it. All of that is what Jesus wants us to do. Create good culture here and now. Education matters, man. Entertainment and art and all of that matters. You wanna know why we have a political issue and political problem? Politics is downstream from culture. We have no presence in Hollywood. We have no presence in any of the arts. We're not writing good books. We're not making good culture. Nobody wants to be us. We need to get to work in our world. Lastly, we worship God. That's what we're gonna do in the new heavens and new earth. That's what we do now. That's why we gather together on Sunday. That's why we get together in missional communities. That's why we live our life. We get to dance to the, the future of God's music now. We get to do it. We know where we're headed. And it's not up to us. What a joy. What a joy. Let me pray for us. Whew. Father, what a privilege and a joy to be written into your story. I know that there's some here even now whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. And I pray that maybe this morning they've sensed their spiritual thirst. 
I pray that they would turn to you, Jesus, and put their faith in you and that you would quench that spiritual thirst. I thank you for the baptisms that showed us this morning that you are a God who quenches spiritual thirst. Thank you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will complete in the new heavens and the new earth. And now, Father, as your people, we do recognize our spiritual thirst, and we come to your table once again to be quenched of both our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst in the Lord's table, that you have fed us with your flesh. The night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. He took the cup. You said, this is my blood that's poured out for the remission of sins. This is the cup of the new covenant. Every time we get together, Father, we eat it, we drink it, we proclaim your death. We look forward to your future. So we come with open hands and receive the nourishment that you alone can give us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.